Okay. Hello, everybody. Um, welcome to uh, the LSC Middle East Center webinar uh, on Israel and the Gulf from secret to open relations. Uh, I'm Ian Black. I'm a visiting senior fellow at the center. Um, I'm going to just talk a little bit about the uh, proceedings. Uh, each speaker will talk for about 10 minutes each, leaving times, uh, time afterwards for questions and answers. If you would like to ask a question, please type your question into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. We will then uh, address the question to the speaker. Please note that this event will be recorded and um, I'm going to introduce the speakers. Uh, the first off will be joining us from uh, Abu Dhabi, uh, Dr. Ebtisam uh, El Ketbi. She's a founder and president of the Emirates uh, Foreign, uh, the Emirates Policy Center, the UAE's leading foreign policy and security think tank. She's a professor of political science at the uh, University of the uh, United Arab Emirates and a member of the Consultative Commission of the Gulf Cooperation Council. She served in several capacities, including as the Secretary General of the Gulf Development Forum and as a member of the core team behind the 2006 Arab Human Development Report. She's also a member of the Board of Directors of the Arab Gulf uh, States Institute in Washington. Next up is Eli Podet. He's a visiting uh, fellow at the uh, LSE Middle East Center and the uh, professor of uh, professor in the history of the Muslim peoples and the Department of Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He serves as the, as the president of the Middle East and Islamic Studies Association uh, of Israel and is a board member of, of uh, Mitvim, the Israeli Institute for Regional Foreign Policies. His areas of study include uh, Egypt, inter-Arab relations, the Arab-Israeli conflict, uh, education and culture in the Middle East, and Israeli foreign policy. And last, but by no means least, is Clive Jones, Professor of Regional Security at the School of Government and International Affairs at Durham University, uh, where he holds a chair in regional security, uh, specializing in the Middle East. Uh, Clive's research interests lie in uh, three related areas, international relations, Middle East studies, uh, with an emphasis on Gulf and uh, uh, security and Israel, security studies, and the political and operational use, uh, use of intelligence as it relates to the Middle East. Um, thank you to all of you. Um, we're going to start with uh, Ebtisam, and she's going to be speaking, as are all uh, the colleagues, for around 10 minutes each. So without further ado, Ebtisam, over to you, and uh, thank you very much for joining us, all of us. I was, I was thanking you and LSE for the invitation, and um, 
uh, if we read the history in retrospect, we will find that out that uh, in likelihood of uh, normalizing ties between UAE and Israel has been a, a possible scenario for decades. There are many reasons that bring the, the two countries closer and, and drive them to cooperate. The decision to freeze plans to annex lands uh, in the West Bank and, and Jordan Valley was uh, a chance to establish uh, public, official, and comprehensive uh, relation between the two countries. Any analysis uh, of, of, of the shift in Emirati foreign policy over the past three decades must reach uh, this conclusion due to, to uh, four fundamental reasons. First, over the past two decades, uh, uh, UAE has, has become a regional actor with an increasing uh, impact and the uh, role in shaping regional policies supported by a strong economy and attractive development model and an ambitious and resilient leadership which was able to adapt to a regional inter international uh, shifts now and 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 prove to the american ally that it's trustworthy in kosovo somalia afghanistan libya in many uh, places in, in fighting ISIS as a part of international uh, coalition 2004. So the, the UAE was uh, in the second place behind the uh, US in number of and the quality of air strike against ISIS. The other thing that uh, also um, uh, that in the wake of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, UAE has realized that the sustaining the alliance with Washington require uh, a realization of shifts in the international or order after those two destructive wars and a rise of an American public tendency to withdraw from wars uh, of the Middle East, plus, of course, the uh, changing the assessment of Washington towards uh, the Gulf and uh, pivoting towards uh, Asia, and, of course, the nuclear deal. So UAE must respond to the American wish of burden sharing to help in self-protection and decrease in American military uh, footprint in the, in the Middle East. So I think UAE and, and Israel uh, are probably Washington's most responsive allies in Middle East to the new American strategy. The third that since September 11th, uh, events, the, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, the, the global financial crisis 2008 and 9, the Arab Spring 2011, and the nuclear deal of Iran 2015, of course, and other events, it has become evident that uh, Emirati perspective of a threat in the region has been changing, especially in the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Iranian threat, as well as Turkey's threat against Arab interests during the Erdogan uh, era. So UAE, Saudi Arabia, and, and Israel, uh, I would say, might be the most serious Middle Eastern countries in, in, in facing these threats and protecting their security and uh, regional interests. The fourth uh, is, it was hard for an ambitious country like UAE, which is working to diversify partnership and, and, and regional and 
international alliances not to take notice of Israel's importance. Likewise, uh, it was hard for Israel not to take notice of UAE increasing regional importance, economic power, and international relations. So this point and the previous three points have made the signing of uh, uh, Emirati-Israeli treaty inevitable based on the two countries' converging perspectives um, towards opportunities and the threats and the importance of strategic cooperation between them in the context of U.S. allies. It is quite uh, understandable today to say that the undeclared UAE-Israeli um, UAE relations were, were actually old and have developed over the past uh, years uh, to include bilateral cooperation in, in different, in medical, in, in security, political areas. So they took various forms of communication and were activated under the framework of international organization to enhance joint action and face common challenges. So under uh, American sponsorship, UAE has decided to make its, its uh, relation and interest with Israel public and make this relation normal and completely official on condition that Israel uh, freeze, uh, freezes its plan to annex land uh, in the West Bank, the Jordan Valley, and north of Dead Sea. So the announcement of full normalization between um, UAE and Israel on uh, August 13 and the official signing on uh, uh, September 15 was important because it is the third peace treaty between Israel and Arab world. So the name of the agreement, Abraham Accords, has an essential implication. Uh, understanding here is bigger and uh, 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 peace is not called. In addition, changes involved in um, the Abraham Accords are not related to economic, uh, strategic, and security uh, interests only. Rather, they, they involve uh, cementing um, co coexisting uh, moderation and tolerance in, 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 uh, in the region. So the Abrahamic Accord is meant uh, to alter past perception and narratives, combat hatred, and advance uh, peace. So based on political calculation and, and current strategic shifts, the dynamics of the Middle East have begun changing rapidly. I either people agree or, or disagree with this strategic step. The fact on the ground suggests that we have some new geopolitical realities ahead. UAE was deeply convinced before signing the, the peace deal with Israel that the region needs a strategic breakthrough and, and a new innovative policies and, and strategies to, to, to solve multiple outstanding problems. UAE step enhance the, the position of the country in the regional game and presents a call for Israel to become part of uh, peace and, and, and development in the region. 
it also represents a call for Israel to facilitate peace negotiation with Palestinians so that they can have their own independent state. This will definitely offer Israel a window of precious opportunities at various levels. Uh, as I mentioned before, the peace agreement between UAE and Israel reflects a joint Israeli-Emirati vision of an increasing set of opportunities and challenges uh, that face both countries. Those opportunities and challenges include, among other things, combating terrorism, Iran and its regional militias, Turkish threats, uh, security, technology, economic um, cooperation, investment, development of military capabilities, and cementing alliance with the, with the U.S. So UAE-Israeli peace uh, accord is considered to be part of UAE readiness for the future. Uh, forms and source of challenges and, and threats are basically changing at a rapid uh, pace to include, among other things, the spread pandemics, food security, challenges, many, many, many things. So I would say the last thing, UAE is a part of what has uh, historically been known as the axis of uh, moderation and stability in the region. So, Strengthening uh, this axis will necessarily require uh, U.S. support rather than a withdrawal from the region. Without this support, we will face a fierce competition from conflicting uh, regional projects, mainly Iran and, and Turkey. So some observer may argue that um, uh, UAE-Israeli uh, peace accord sends a strong deterrence message to some regional uh, powers. This is how they interpret it. However, the significance uh, of this message lies in the fact that the deal can help reach diplomatic solution to regional crisis instead of aggravating uh, current conflict. And it's open for others to join, like Bahrain joined that. So it's open for all other in the region to be part of that uh, peace deal. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Dissan. Uh, um, so we're going to go straight on to hear from Eddie Podet. Thank you very much. Um, let me uh, open with um, uh, two remarks. First of all, what I'm presenting is a part of a larger project that I'm doing on uh, Israel's secret relations in the Middle East from 48 until 2020. And it covers many areas with Egypt, Jordan, and the Gulf is one area or one chapter, but a very important one, um, which uh, will soon come first in Hebrew and then uh, in English as well. This is one thing. And secondly, it, it, it is quite amazing. I mean, I heard it some, and I, uh, I saying there are so many things in common. I mean, as if um, I would talk and focus on the Israeli side, but as you will see, many of the things that I'll say are quite the same. Um, all right, so I think that basically the situation was a win-win uh, situation. 
both for the Emirates and uh, the Israelis. And I will try to explain why from an Israeli point of view. I think there are at least five arguments why. The first one is that since uh, its, its establishment, Israel, is in a search uh, for uh, recognition and legitimacy in the international and regional arenas. Uh, and in contrast to the international arena, recognition and legitimacy has eluded Israel until 1979 with uh, the peace with Egypt, uh, 1994, the peace with Jordan, and the Oslo Agreement with the Palestinians in 1993. So this is another step in uh, the process of Israel's acceptance and recognition as a legitimate actor in the Middle East. The second thing is that it is an acknowledgement of Israel's military superiority and its important role as a balancer in uh, Middle Eastern politics vis-a-vis Iran, vis-a-vis jihadist elements, vis-a-vis the Muslim Brotherhood, and perhaps even Turkey. This is a particularly important in light of the prevalent perception that the U.S. is in gradual process of retreat from the Middle East, which might be pushed forward under the next American uh, administration. The third issue is that Israel gained a foothold in the Gulf. Uh, Israel had the diplomatic representation in, uh, uh, at IRENA, IRENA is the UN International Renewable Energy Agency since uh, 2015, but now this is different. In many ways, as Iran has had the foothold on Israel's border through Syria and Hezbollah in Lebanon, now Israel faces a border, uh, faces Iran close to its border from the UAE and Bahrain, in addition also to Azerbaijan. So if you look at the map, you will see that Israel now encircles Iran from both north and west. I would not rule out military cooperation in case of need. The fourth is that it might improve Israel's image in certain places in the Middle East. So far, Israel in the Mid- Israel's image in the Middle East, including in the countries that did sign agreement, is highly negative. In general, the image of Israel in the Gulf is positive. Actually, between Israel and the Gulf, there were no wars, no serious conflict regarding boundaries, refugees, security, perhaps maybe Jerusalem. Uh, But moreover, uh, the UAE and Bahrain work to promote tolerance through interfaith uh, dialogue. But, and this is an important but, so far, uh, this hope has not been materialized According to a survey conducted by the Ministry of Strategic uh, Affairs in Israel, says that almost 90%, 90% of the Arab social media users had negative comments on the agreements. And the final point here is that in contrast to peace with Jordan in Egypt, there is a potential for a warm peace between Israel, UAE, and Bahrain, as Ibtissam uh, mentioned. Uh, In addition to the lack of uh, animosity as a result of hostilities in the past, uh, the current peace uh, relies on some 25 years of clandestine cooperation. So, I mean, in my work, I showed that there there were many, really many cooperations on many fields starting in the 90s. So the peace is not only a top-down venture, like with Egypt and Jordan, it is a bottom-up project. According to the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs, a few hundred Israeli firms are operating in the Emirates and Gulf. Can you imagine? I mean, already operating a few hundred. 
Uh, and I don't have the exact figures, but the number of uh, transactions signed in the last month is highly impressive. Potential of vast cooperation in many fields, investments, tourism, health, agriculture, agrotechnology, cyber, desalination, and many more. The UAE market is the second largest economy in the Middle East after Saudi Arabia and similar to Israel. In contrast to Egypt, where the gross domestic, uh, domestic product per capita is around $2,500, uh, and in Jordan around $4,200, the GNP per capita in Israel and the UAE is more than $40,000. Uh, so the basis for economic cooperation is 10 times greater between Israel and the UAE than with Egypt and Jordan. Bahrain is a smaller economy, only one-tenth of the UAE, but still the prospects for cooperation are greater than with Egypt and Jordan. So what are the problems, if there are any? Let me now move and say something about the Palestinian issue. Ignoring the Palestinian issue, this is the most serious threat that is facing us as Israelis. This is my take. And uh, as time permit me, I want to say five comments on that issue. First, many in Israel may be attracted to the notion that in it, as Netanyahu is trying to promote or market the agreement, is peace for peace. The agreement with the UAE was not free, and in any case, uh, was different uh, from the other peace with uh, Egypt and Jordan. Um, we have to remember, and Ibtissam mentioned it, the fact that Israel had to postpone or to cancel altogether the whole issue of annexation. This is one thing. And the second is the issue of the F-35, which the Emirates are going to purchase from the United States. Now here, let me remind all the viewers something that they may not know, not know but in 1995, after the Oslo agreements, the Emirati uh, met with Rabin, the prime minister, and they gained from him a permission. Permission is not a permission, it's a consent to buy the F-16 from the United States. So what you see here is a pattern that repeats itself, okay? So this is very important in order to remember that Israel indeed paid a price. The second point is, Many will now believe that it is possible to move forward with the Arab countries without dealing with the Palestinian issue. Actually, a recent poll of Mitvim indicated that 67, 67% of the Jews in Israel prefer that Israel would promote peace with the Arab states rather than with the Palestinians. So this is a huge problem. The third is that the Palestinian issue, I believe, many believe, is the core of the conflict. As time passes by, ignoring or bypassing it means that the two-state solution is fading away. Many are already thinking that it is not feasible at all and opting for a one-state solution, which in my mind uh, is not a solution, but a recipe for a fauda. The fourth uh, point is that, uh, or question, to what extent the agreement damage or support the possibility of negotiation. Now, it goes both ways. At present, the agreement pushed the PA into the corner and it will be not be easy to get them out. Certainly, certainly not with the Trump administration. 
Only a new administration can have a hope of reaching out to the Palestinians, uh, but uh, at the same time, chances that it will happen uh, or any American president will be preoccupied now with the domestic uh, situation in the United States. So I don't foresee that the American administration, whether it's Trump or Biden, in the near future will deal with the conflict. And finally, one of the main problems is um, the situation on the Palestinian front. The fact that the aging leadership and uncertainty and for who will replace Abu Mazen. Next, the despair on the Palestinian side that there are no chances for a peaceful solution with this current Israeli government. And finally, the divisions among the Palestinians themselves between the Fatah and the Hamas. And it is true that now uh, they are holding talks and they might create some kind of a united front. But let me remind all of us that all these past reconciliations, all of them failed. So we don't know. So let me conclude. What can and should be done? In my mind, quite clear, if we assess that the Palestinian issue is the core of the conflict and one of the reasons for Israel's domestic and external problems, then Israel has on its own, or even better, with the Emirates, with the Bahrain, with the Gulf in general, launch a generous peace offer, peace plan. And I emphasize the word generous because Israel is the stronger party. But taking into account the political climate, and the forces operating in the Israeli political system, that will probably not happen, at least not in the near future. A change in the American administration with an active support of the EU may make the prospect of a change at present look quite bleak. So I don't think that even these changes on the American side will change a lot. So, in order not to end with a pessimistic note, let me emphasize that in any case, the agreements um, will and are contributing to the stability of the Middle East. In this age of so many regional conflict and economic suffering as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, I see them as a highly positive development. Thanks, Ian. To you, back to you. Thank you, Ali. Um, over to you, uh, Clive, for another 10 minutes, and then we'll start our uh, questions and answers and hopefully uh, hear more from uh, you three speakers. Clive. Um, okay, well, there we go. Yeah. Okay, um, just to echo the, um, some of the comments and the introductory comments of um, Eptasam and to Ellie, just to thank uh, the LSE Middle East uh, Center for organizing um, this important um, event. Um, what I have to say echoes much of what's already been said. I guess that's the, the penalty you pay for going last. Um, but I just want to make one important point, I think, which is often missed when we're looking at these um, agreements. And it's kind of the, the fine print, if you like, that's in the Abraham uh, Accords. I want to say this which is that um, this is more than just about diplomatic recognition. Implicit within the actual accords themselves is almost a historic recognition 
of Jewish historic rights to the state and by implication the land of Israel. In the past, the agreements that Israel signed with Jordan and with Egypt is about recognition that Israel just exists as, as a reality. But this imp implicit within the accords themselves is, is the historic rights of Jews to uh, a home in historic uh, Palestine, er Eretz Israel. And I think that's important, dare I say, for how things in the future will progress with the Palestinians, because if you are equating Jewish historic rights and Palestinian historic rights, give them equal weight, that, that in of itself, I think, is something that is much to Israel's um, advantage. And something that, dare, dare I say, Benjamin Netanyahu has always wanted recognition uh, for in negotiations with the Palestinians. So that's just kind of a precursor of what I want to say. Okay, I've been asked really to look at the kind of the emergence of the regional security architecture. Much of the focus on the, uh, uh, the, the deal between Israel, the United Arab Emirates and, and Bahrain has been on who will be next. Will it be Saudi Arabia? Will it be Sudan? Will it be Oman and Morocco? And no doubt some of these issues will be raised in, in, in the Q&A. And equally, what does actually normalization look like? We've, we've heard from both Eli and from uh, um, Abed Sam about um, the role that uh, military cooperation, security cooperation, economic investment, Eli talked about the, the number of, of, of ongoing um, um, business negotiations, trade agreements that are beginning to now be formed between the Emiratis and the Israelis. All this is important, but what is actually reveal about wider trends, wider regional trends in the system itself. I think the first thing to note is the Middle East now really represents three main uh, blocks. The first block is really made up of Iran, Syria, the various Shia militias, and often it's given the label, um, the kind of rejectionist front. That's one block. The next block is really the Sunni states who coalesce around confronting Iran, and ultimately the driver, if you like, between the agreement between Israel and the Emiratis has ultimately been Iran. How do you uh, confront um, Iran and the perceptions of Iran being um, a growing regional uh, power? I think even here, however, in this block of which Israel is now a part, and the block really contains the Emiratis, the Egyptians, the Jordanians, um, I think even here there is an emphasis upon different elements of the threat. The Saudis and the Bahrainis clearly are looking at the external threat, that is Iran. Whereas while this is also the case for the Emiratis, I think there's also a broader issue here of how they perceive the threat from um, the Muslim Brotherhood. That certainly is a, a, a shared sense of threat that they also have with the Jordanians and with um, the Egyptians. And the third block, I think, that we now see uh, determining relationships uh, across the region are really those Sunni states who are actually sympathetic to the Muslim Brotherhood. So here we're looking primarily at Turkey, but also uh, Qatar, a close relationship that's developed between uh, those two states and of course uh, Hamas. The outliers here clearly are the Omanis and the um, Kuwaitis. Um, and even though clearly there's the very famous visit of Netanyahu to see uh, the late uh, Sultan uh, um, Qaboos, um, we simply don't know at this stage which way they will actually align themselves. The Kuwaitis and the Omanis traditionally have tried to sort of per, um, perform the role of brokers. Uh, that may be 
the role that they continue to see themselves as bridges between the various factions or the various blocks them, the, them, themselves. But it remains to be seen, given that, dare I say it, um, both of those states are now under new management. Now, these are blocks, but they're not necessarily coherent blocks in and of themselves. Their interests don't all, always converge. And just to give you one example of this, um, as much as um, there is a dim view taken of Qatar's um, support for Muslim Brotherhood and Muslim Brotherhood organizations, actually, I would argue that Qatar is needed by Israel precisely because Qatar, in essence, bankrolls the economy of the Gaza Strip. And without Qatar and Qatari money going into the Gaza Strip, Israel would ultimately have to be have to take responsibility for governance in the Strip, which may even include going back into the Strip itself and the tensions, indeed violence, that would actually ensue from that. So Israel probably has to sort of, in this regard, hold its nose and do business with the Qataris and through the Qataris, of course, business with um, Hamas itself. It's also not clear that, you know, dis despite clear um, interests emerging between the Emiratis and the Israelis, primarily over Iran, whether they necessarily share the same view of the security situation and the security challenges as they're now developing in the eastern uh, Mediterranean. It's not clear that Israel would necessarily want to be drawn in to any increasing tension that certainly exists now between the Emiratis and the Turks over what is now taking place uh, in Libya. Clearly, Israel has its own uh, interests, notably its own gas fields that it wants to defend. Clearly, it has interests in building pipelines to Europe to export that gas. But that's probably the limit of Israel's willingness to actually get involved in any regional tension within the eastern Mediterranean itself. Briefly, what about the Palestinians? They are very much caught between what I would call the rock and the hard and the hard place. It's very, very difficult to see what cards right now they have to play. And they are very much dependent, if you like, on the interests of wider regional players. And indeed, if we're looking at Hamas at the moment, its main interest is in keeping things quiet within the Strip itself. And it's quite clear that the uh, Hamas leader in the Gaza Strip, Yaya Sinna, is very much engaged in trying to get more inward investment and more uh, aid from uh, the Qataris right now. And of course, the, 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 the Palestinians are in a very weak place via, via the Saudis. And I'm sure many people listening to this uh, event are, are well aware of the comments last week of Prince Banda al-Sultan in Al-Arabiya when he was, in, he was very, very critical of the Palestinians, uh, biting the hand, if you like, that actually feeds them. What about the United States of America? Um, it's very interesting and much will depend clearly what happens in, in the uh, November election. But it seems to me that what we've seen emerge from Trump as he tries to pivot America away from the Middle East is nonetheless what I would call transactional containment. This might be a new form of Nixon doctrine. In essence, you're beginning to arm your key allies in the hope that they contain the wider regional threat that emanates from Iran. How that will play out if there is a new administration in November remains to be seen. But I do think uh, amidst all the, the rancor and controversy about President Trump's pivot away from uh, the Middle East and some of his more 
uh, inflame rhetoric, there nonetheless is a method here, and that is a new form of containment, and the containment you now do through your, your allies within the region. And this harks back, I think, to a pattern that was set by President Nixon back in the 1970s. Again, however, there will be tensions here. Israel has made it very clear that it wants to re uh, retain its qualitative military edge. We know about the controversy about whether and under what conditions the Emiratis will receive the F-35. My sense is they will receive the F-35, but there's a practicality here, which is to say there's actually a long uh, leading time in terms of the supply chain. And I understand from, 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 from other sources that actually the, um, there are others ahead of the queue of the Emiratis in who will receive the F-35. So it's unlikely that if the Emiratis do receive it, they'll get it anyway, anywhere before 2000, uh, 2024, 2025. The other supply in the ointment in terms of the cohesion of the second block that I spoke about and Israel's ties to it is concern that many have over Saudi Arabia's nuclear program. The fact that the Saudis um, clearly have designs on developing what they, what will, they claim to be a, a peaceful nuclear program, but they won't sign up to the gold standard in which they would forsake an enrichment capability, something that the Emiratis have done. So that's something that clearly concerns, I think, many Israeli policy uh, makers. Very briefly for Iran, clearly they see the deal between Israel and the Emiratis as a stab um, in the back. And equally, and this is something that Eli also mentioned, Israel now has allies very much at, at the forefront, the front line of Iran itself. It no longer can rely on the cleavages brought about from the Arab-Israeli conflict to keep Israel at a distance. So in other words, it's actually lost much of its strategic depth that it actually had. And this worries the Iranians. I mean, they have a track record in ensuring that local clients are very much in positions of power. And it shouldn't be forgotten that back in, I think it was 2017, 2018, that the Iranians, in effect, scuppered um, attempts at um, a Kurdish independence in Iraq following a referendum in which it was clearly voted for by the majority of the Kurdish popu uh, population. And they increasingly will see themselves as being surrounded by states who are uh, allied with or beholden to this sort of Sunni stroke Israeli Arab bloc, Bloc 2, as I actually um, described it. And I think the final thing I would add here is that they are also concerned that there will be increased cooperation between the Gulf states, Israel and the United States to close off clandestine um, financial channels to uh, which they've used to help evade the Biden sanctions that have been imposed upon the United States. So I'll leave it there, Ian, and I'm sure there's much for people to digest and to come back with uh, uh, regarding questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Clive. Um, I should say, I forgot to say at the beginning, that we tried and failed to, uh, to uh, include on the panel uh, an appropriately uh, uh, qualified Palestinian participant. Um, that's a shame uh, because, of course, the Palestinians, as Clive has uh, just said, uh, are stuck between a rock and a very hard place. And, um, so are we going to move to questions now, um, and I'm bear with me uh, uh, in the sense that I'm going to obviously there's a lot of questions. There are 19 already, 
uh, and I'm going to combine uh, uh, different uh, themes. So one from Andrew Cunningham um, is, I think, uh, directed largely towards uh, Dr. Abtissam. Surely you cannot believe that Israel is really going to freeze settlements permanently on the West Bank. Historically, uh, Israel has suspended settlement building expansion as a negotiating strategy, but the long-term historical trend is clear. And uh, in, a, in addition to that, I would merge that with a question from Phoebe O'Hara. Um, and um, again, Dr. Addisam, given that the deal is supposedly conditional on Israeli retreat from the annexation of the West Bank or parts of the West Bank, more precisely, what would happen if annexation uh, went ahead, occurred? Well, uh, that was a condition, but what that was not behind that uh, that decision UAE take to to normalize with Israel. That was a condition. Now, this is I'm always saying the ball is now on the ground of the Palestinian. So let them grab this opportunity and jump on the table. Okay, and negotiate with the Israeli, since that the Israeli, they accept to freeze uh, the annexation and the settlements. Uh, well, let me go back also. When Oslo happened, who is, uh, it's not I am condemning that uh, the Palestinian, I'm, I'm, I have sympathy with the Palestinian people, but no sympathy with the Palestinian leadership. Okay, now Hamas started, uh, uh, bombing uh, Tel Aviv when after Oslo, so that also cut the negotiation between the Israeli and the Palestinian. Now, like ben, uh, Prince Bender said, when they come back to the table, nothing on the table. So now, what if the Israeli accept the freezing? Let them jump on that. So UAE cannot guarantee the Israeli uh, decision. Uh, for a long time, okay? But that was condition Israeli fulfilled their promise. Now, they, if they, there's another government coming after Netanyahu and they decided to, uh, to do the, the annexation or to go forward with the annexation. So this is, I mean, the Palestinian also lost their chance again. This is the Palestinian uh, decision now, let them go and take it. Uh, uh, does anybody else want to uh, answer that question? Maybe Eli, uh, what would happen if uh, uh, annexation went ahead or settlement uh, construction continued? Yeah, okay. I uh, was waiting to unmute me. Um, I think that we can try and learn a little bit from history. I mean, what happened? Um, when um, war broke out between Israel and Lebanon in 1982, uh, when the Intifada broke out in 2000, uh, the Egyptian uh, on both cases, the Jordanian on the second uh, occasion, they recalled the ambassador. They did not cut or sever their relations with Israel. That didn't happen. 
So uh, has to take something very significant in order to um, cut off relations completely. So I think this is one possible scenario, but I would add one more thing, which is sometimes maybe neglected. The fact that as a result of the agreement, the Emirati and the Bahrainis now, they have a certain leverage over the Israeli governments, meaning that uh, any Israeli government will have to take into account, listen, if you are going to do X or that, uh, we are going to respond. Uh, even recalling the Abbas, though, is a very serious diplomatic step. So, I mean, if taken all together by the Egyptian, Egyptians, Jordanians, and the Emiratis and the Bahrainis, I mean, that might be a serious setback for any Israeli government. So that has to be taken into account as well. Sorry? You could just add to that. I mean, I agree with everything Eli says, but it could even be more profound than that, because ultimately, when you withdraw an ambassador, it's the symbolism of the act, which clearly has diplomatic ramifications. But equally, um, the relationship with the Emiratis is one that increasingly is, is, is being seen as uh, developing new economic, new trade links, which have tremendous potential. And that includes massive inward investment from the Emiratis into the Israeli economy. And that could possibly give the Emiratis a leverage that no other Arab state has ever had over Israel before. I mean, they have a huge sovereign wealth fund, which is worth something like $230 billion. And that, you know, in extremists could actually be used if the Israelis were pursuing a policy which was considered by the Emiratis to be antithetical to the, to the word, if not the spirit, of the, of the Abraham Accords. Okay, so I'm going to... Um carry on merging questions. So several people have asked, um, and I think it would be useful to hear an answer from all, all three speakers, um, which Gulf countries, or indeed other Arab countries beyond the Gulf, uh, do you believe um, would likely follow the example of the UAE and Bahrain? Obviously, uh, there's been a lot of speculation about Saudi Arabia, uh, but other countries have been mentioned too, uh, whether Oman or Morocco or Sudan, to give just a few of the most prominent examples. Uh, so uh, that's uh, a bunch of questions. So please, I would like to hear from all of you uh, on, the, on that uh, issue. Well, as, as Clive mentioned in, in his book, that they've been in relation with all GCC countries and cooperation with Israel a uh, long time now. And, and I think Qatar is, they announced that their relation 1994, that was so long before that, but normalization, ha it hasn't happened in terms of, of uh, same like what, what happened between UAE and, and Israel signing an, an agreement. Well, likely Qataris is coming and Romanis. This is what I'm seeing, I mean, in the nearest future. Yeah, the Sudan and the others. Maybe that the Qataris has not got the, that constraints which Saudi they have, which, which, which uh, the, the, the Moroccan they have, uh, or, or the Sudanese. So I think most likely those two countries, I mean, in the nearest future. 
and uh, Ellie and Clive, please. Yeah, well, first of all, I think that um, nothing sub substantial will happen until the elections uh, are over in the States, so it seems. So anything uh, that will happen will be postponed until after the elections, uh, often new, new or the same president. Um, so in terms of priority, I would bet on Sudan as the next one um, for two reasons. First of all, I mean, following what's going on inside, it seems that at the beginning, there was some internal strife or rivalry between two schools of thought, one in favor, was one in against. Um, and right now it seems that uh, they are all united behind uh, the idea of establishing diplomatic relations with Israel. The question is the price. Uh, what will the price that the Americans will pay uh, in terms of uh, financial, financial support? And of course, erasing them from the list of terror states uh, supporting terrorism. So this is the issue. Now, even if you go backwards to history, something that I've done in my chapter on Israeli-Sudanese relations, it's quite amazing to see how much they cooperated the two countries behind the scenes along the years. I mean, in the, first seven, in the 50s, in the 60s, uh, President Numeri, for example, he did cooperate with the United States and with Israel behind the scenes, especially with regard to the immigration of the Jews from Ethiopia. Uh, but not only that, um, and even it started with Bashir, which is unheard of, I mean, kind of connection between Israel and Sudan. And this is certainly true with regard to South Sudan, which we have already established diplomatic relations. So I would say Sudan. Then next, uh, when you talk about the Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia is complicated, no doubt, and certainly because of the two schools of thought existing in the kingdom, King Salman uh, on the one hand and MBS on the other hand. So this is a generational issue, it seems to me. So, and it might take some time until it will be solved. Oman, which was the next likely candidate, you know, uh, Sudan Qaboos has recently died. And it seems that his uh, successor is not as charismatic or as strong as Caboose in order to take such a decisive uh, step, especially in light of the fact that Oman is, is in a very delicate position because it has diplomatic, not only diplomatic, but it has also economic relations with uh, Iran. And this is uh, a burden on the Omanis, and I'm not sure that they are going, they have anything that they want behind the scenes, that there, there is no need. And then um, the Kuwaitis, which were raised as a possibility, frankly, I didn't see it in the past, you know? I mean, it's quite amazing to see, I mean, Clive has written a book about it as well, so he would say something about it. We can say so much about Oman, Bahrain, Emirates, even Saudi Arabia, but very little about Kuwaitis relations with Israel, even behind the scenes. So it seems unlikely. And Qatar, Qatar is always <laughs> a different story. It's a different story. And in my mind, they have anything that they need. And they don't want now to antagonize Turkey, the Muslim Brotherhood, and others 
by established diplomatic relations. But I just want to mention to everyone that Qatar was the last one to have diplomatic relations with Israel until 2009. I mean, quite amazing. I mean, everybody else with the uh, outbreak of the Intifada, they cut off their relations, but not Qatar. They kept the, the Israeli legation there uh, nine years later. So this is my take on the issue. So uh, again, I'm combining uh, various questions, um, but um, obviously this decision by the UAE and Bahrain leaves um, the Palestinians in particular uh, in uh, a difficult position. They've uh, rejected, uh, well, certainly the leadership and many individuals have rejected the decision as a betrayal, uh, you know, uh, normalization, tadbi'ah in Arabic is, remains a dirty word, I think uh, you would all agree. Um, and um, the, the, the question is um, really, um, the support for the Palestinians has long been um, a given in the in Arab countries. Uh, is that changing? Um, is that um, are people simply fed up with the Palestinian cause? I, I think it makes sense to begin with Ebtisam. Uh, uh, also, the, there's a specific question too, which comes from uh, Sana Kanane, um, which is if so. If if the the Emirati government believes that um, this is um, supportive of the Palestinians by avoiding Israeli annexation of parts of the West Bank, why is it uh, afraid of criticism and has arrested uh, people who are opposed to normalization? Ebtisam, please. Well. Uh Accusing UAE of betrayal by uh, PA, I think it's irrational accusation and, and not based on the logic of strategic analysis of Middle Eastern um, landscape. So uh, uh, the lack of normalization of relation between Israel and, and Arab countries over the past decades has not moved the Palestinian Israeli peace process forward and, and has not achieved any gains for Palestinians. So normalization between UAE and Israel might move this process forward or at worst thing will remain the same. So the deadlock in regional relations has not led to any gains for anyone. So therefore UAE has decided to, to think outside the box hoping that the region might move towards uh, peace and prosperity. UAE peace uh, treaty with Israel is not aimed against any Arab countries. UAE calculation do not include competing over the role with other brother countries uh, 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 have ties with Israel. Now, as, as um, what, uh, I'm, I forget her name, uh, Kanane, I'm sorry. Sana, yeah. Sana, Sana uh, Kanane. 
Okay. Sana. Uh, yeah, you, you mentioned that, that the, the, the Palestinian case, is it, now it's not the priority? Well, let us be realistic. After Arab Spring, each country was busy with their problem, own problem, okay? Uh, the, the priority of Palestinian issues, it's because what happened after the Arab Spring, okay? This, uh, because each, each country was busy with its own problem. So now, when I said that either you keep the situation like that and we reach that deadlock, either you think out of the box. And you cannot be also, uh, be st uh, waiting for the Palestinian until they come with their solution, which they lost it, which they lost it. Okay, how many times they, when they've been asked, and what we realize through um, Chris Bender interview, how many opportunities and chances they lost by the leadership. Now, uh, uh, I would say UAE was uh, in a sensitive situation, and now this with this announcement. Most of that, what uh, Ili mentioned, that those who they were against the normalization. Also, don't forget Ili. Social media is not, there are many anonymous. There are many also created by the Muslim Brotherhood, the Turks, the Qataris. So I cannot, it's not reliable uh, to reflect really the Arab opinion, right? And I, I, and I know some of Palestinian intellectuals themselves they are revisiting the, the, the Palestinian issue in terms, is it can be reached two-state solution or should we be realistic and try to achieve something with Israel? Otherwise, we will lose everything. And this is, I heard from many Palestinian intellectuals in, in a personal uh, discussion. Uh, any other comments from the panelists? I'm waiting to say something, but maybe Clive, go ahead, or you want to? Well, I, I think in terms of the Palestinians, um, I think Israel has always, if I can just take this back a little bit to domestic Israeli politics as well, I think Israel has always seen, the, particularly under the Netanyahu government, is for the, the Palestinians as an issue, and Palestinian identity and nationalism and statehood and so forth, there's always been a, a problem to be contained, controlled and managed, but, but, but never solved. I mean, I was struck by a, a newspaper editorial that actually that Ellie wrote about a month or so ago. And he, had, he ended up the, the newspaper editorial by saying it would be nice to visit Abu Dhabi, but I, you know, we have to visit Ramallah first, or words to that effect. And I think ultimately this comes down to the changing characteristic and the changing identity of Israel itself. It always used to be the proud claim of Israel that it was both a Jewish and a democratic state. But increasingly, I think there's this ethnic identity that's very much the fore in Israeli politics. And we can see this, for example, in the controversies um, surrounding the passing of the, of, the, of the nation state law back in 2018. And I think it's that broader cultural mindset, that, that broader sort of um, sense of Israel increasingly moving to the right in terms of its popular politics, which I think has enabled Netanyahu to, in essence, to almost ignore any kind of pressure to actually deal constructively with the whole issue of, of Palestinian and Palestinian statehood. And I'll, I'll leave my comments there. 
May I add, uh, Ian? Sure. Short? Well, I think that your question dealt with the issue of um, is there still an Arab commitment, what we call the Arab commitment to the Palestinian issue. I think the answer to that question is very problematic because we don't have reliable polls. And the only poll that I thought that might be reliable is James Zogby poll. And he says that it's not among the important issue for the younger generation. So that might be an indication. But at the same time, uh, when you look at um, the trade unions, uh, civil society in general, I mean, I'm talking about the countries that did sign agreement with Israel in Jordan and Egypt. They're very much opposed the peace treaty. They're very much in favor of the Palestinian issue and so on. Um, so, I mean, these are contradictory messages and we, we are in need of a serious analysis and poll that will indicate to us, I mean, what is really the level of uh, the support of Arab support to the Palestinian, PA, to the Palestinian mm -hmm. issue? And perhaps indeed, there is uh, a huge change in recent years, especially among the younger generation. Okay. Um, I'm, uh, I'm being bombarded with questions here. Um, normalization between Palestinians and Israel lead Palestinians nowhere, and arguably to a, a worse place than pre-Oslo. That's the agreement of 1993. Uh, why does Ebtisam think that the UAE's normalization will achieve anything for Palestinians? I think it already achieved by freezing the, 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 the settlement and the, the annexation. Already that one happened. Now, uh, uh, reaching a solution for all Palestinian issues, I don't think, because also the Palestinian leadership, they refuse any uh, trial from, from, from UAE. They are refusing the subsidies sent by UAE to Gaza or to Ramallah. From beginning, they are offended uh, uh, anything coming from uh, UAE. I think, well, this is what I'm saying. We are in the Arab world, always stick to a classic way uh, in dealing with things. This is what I meant when we are thinking out of the box. Why we don't give us a chance now? Uh, um, Clive mentioned that the leverage, and, and also Eli mentioned that leverage UAE has. Uh, that kind of, of investment from UAE and Israel, give it uh, a, a, an economic leverage. Uh, that kind of, of this relation, Israeli also, they will see, because with, with Jordan and, uh, and uh, Egypt, that was a cold peace. It's only about a uh, uh, security issue. So they didn't see the other side of normalization. The, the, I would say the outcome of that normalization in terms of real normalization, people to people, having that economic relation, tourism, uh, cultural relation, uh, they didn't see that. So this might change also the narrative of both sides the Israeli about 
the, the Arab world uh, changed the stereotype of the Israeli about the Arabs. So they might also push them that they see if, if peace, they gain more. And they cannot also go forever with antagonizing the Palestinian. Uh, so they might push them also for a solution for the Palestinian because they are door to door and they cannot neglect that how many Palestinians are, are living, they cannot also neglect their rights in their lands. So this is why UAE thinks that this normalization might lead to a solution between Palestinian and uh, the Israeli, but this also depends on the Palestinian authority and they, their will to solve that problem. Other comments? Yeah. Other ones? Um, yeah, short comment. I think that maybe the Palestinians uh, should uh, realize that um, the previous Arab commitment to the Palestinian cause is uh, no longer guaranteed. I mean, if you read, uh, for example, um, Abdelrahman Rashid, a very important uh, Arab Saudi, Saudi yeah. journalist, and he said, I mean, I think two months ago, very plainly, he said that every state has the right to take its own way. I mean, uh, the Emirati decided what is best for their country. And this is uh, the situation with any other Arab country. So if he reflects a, a mood or a change in the Arab position, then this is something that I think that the Palestinians should, should take into account that um, the, um, the, the Arab uh, support that was granted in the past is no longer there. And I'm saying that because um, I think that we are already seeing a change in the Saudi behavior. Now, Saudi Arabia is a very important, some would even say the most important player uh, in the Gulf or in the Arab world. Um, but in any way, it is an important player. Now, once the Saudis will maybe not normalize, but we somehow promote relations with the Israelis before uh, any solution or any progress on the Palestinian issue, that uh, will send a very important message throughout the Arab world. And I think that uh, the Palestinians should take into account that the emirati move was very significant because it paved the way to a new thinking in the Arab world. And Bahrain already followed. So it might take a few months, a few years to others to follow, but that is a major change. And therefore, I think that in the Palestinian calculation, when they think in themselves, I mean, how should we react? What should we do? I mean, they should take it into account. So the new leadership, any leadership, Palestinian leadership, will have to take it into account and not stick to the old traditional positions, but try to move ahead and try to take advantage of the changes. I mean, the fact that now the Emirati and the Bahrainis are very much there, try to take advantage of it. Yes, Clive. 
Ian, Ian, can I just ask then Ellie one very, very quick question? Um, what does taking advantage look like? And by implication, does everything is everything that he said? Does that mean that the that's the end of the Arab Peace Initiative? Yeah, frankly, I don't know. Uh, I would very much hope that it doesn't end the Arab Peace Initiative because I think it was a breakthrough and it was an important achievement at that time, mm-hmm. signed by all the 22 Arab states altogether. But it seems to me that it has to be modified. So maybe all of us together, you know, can work on a modified version <laughs> of the Arab Peace Initiative. That's an idea. Because I mean, and to your answer, to your question, you know, I mean, how take advantage of the Emirati and Bahraini, uh, try to involve them um, in this endeavor. And also try to involve the Israelis. I mean, the Air Peace Initiative was initiated, obviously, without the involvement of Israel. They were trying to take into account the Israeli position. And that's why and how they drafted the clause regarding the Palestinian refugee issue. This is true. But Israel was not involved, and Israel, in fact, never responded formally. So now maybe there is a position to do something, maybe behind the scenes. But uh, even, I mean, in my presentation, I said that maybe now it's time to have something together. If we, I mean, come to the idea or we understand that beneath all and beyond the importance and the significance of the Israeli Emirati and Bahraini move, what lies ahead is a solution of the Palestinian issue, we should now focus on that together. Um, I'd like to ask uh, a question. With all respect, Eli, and I, sure. because we couldn't reach consensus in, in the Arab League, so I, we will not reach that consensus anymore. Uh, consensus, yeah. Yeah, we will not. We will not reach it. So I would say, I mean, I cannot wait for all Arabs. Now, somebody has to bring kind of solution. The, the, the old Arab initiative, it might not be come again. And, and it's, it's, it's all, some of those whom they signed on it, not uh, here anymore. So you need some, a new version, okay? But you need also the Palestinian to agree on that, a new version. I mean, we, can, we cannot speak on behalf of them. We need the PA also to be, and to accept that. And I hope they will. Yeah, I agree. It's no longer relevant for all the Arab countries. But I mean, the document is there and you can work with the document. Um, I'd like to uh, go back to the questions. Um, So uh, Brad Benton, he describes himself as a Middle East analyst with NATO. Can any of the speakers please comment on the likelihood, on A, the likelihood that the Palestinian Authority, Fatah leadership changeover proceeds without violence? and B, whether the Palestinian identity shaped since 1964, which when the PLO was founded, is now or in the near future separable from the concept of violence as a means of restoring lost lands. It's a, quite a complicated question, but uh, I think it's important to focus on the Palestinians 
in, in um, your um, discussions? I mean, okay. it, do you want me to start in? Yes, yes. Oh, okay, okay. I mean, it's again, if you're looking at some of this, you know, the, the debates about su uh, succession from Mahmoud Abbas, and people are sort of now pointing at um, um, uh, Jabir Rajoub as likely to um, be a successor. And again, then they're looking at his, some of his statements, which have been very much rabble rousing and talking about resistance and so forth. Um, but at the end of the day, the Palestinians, as I said at the very beginning, are caught between that rock and the hard place. Who do they align themselves with? How do they leverage what little influence that they now have in order to try to achieve a two-state solution? And it's very, very hard to actually see that. It also presupposes, of course, that the Palestinians would want to go back to, to violence. But you know, they were badly seared by the, by, the, by, by the violence and the cost in lives of the Al-Aqsa Intifada, you know, a, a bloody conflict which impacted upon families on, 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 on both sides of the Israel-Palestine divide. So I think, who do you go to? And I think what, what was quite, and it goes back to points that Ellie have, has, has made as well. Um, I think there was a meeting last week of the Arab League where the Palestinians tried to get uh, a motion passed which, which condemned the, uh, the peace accords, or at least criticised the peace accords, and this failed. Mm -hmm. There was no measure of condemnation. So it's very hard right now to see where the Palestinians actually go beyond, dare I say, it, trying to get some form of reconciliation between Hamas and uh, the PLO-dominated PA in, in the West Bank. And this is where you know, people are now talking about Jabir Rajoub coming in and being perhaps the, the new leader. Personally, I don't think it will, put, it, it, it will happen. You know, the Palestinians want a political solution. You know, they don't want a violent solution to this, but they need the kind of the leverage of outside powers in order to try to, try to put pressure upon the Israelis. But right now, all the, all, 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 all the building blocks are, are, are not on their side. Um, I have a question from somebody called uh, Farage. Um, in a speech for speech presumably he means by Netanyahu he talks about the wealth of the Gulf states and Israeli technology uh, could firm could form the world's most powerful economic region do you think that this could be a US objective in order to check rivals brackets China from gaining more power interesting any thoughts Trump's motivation. Uh, I, I uh, look again. I mean, it cannot be simple like that. Yes, there is a competition between uh, China and and um, U.S. and there is concerns also from the the built-on road, uh, Chinese built-on road uh, penetrating the the Middle East, and there is also that. Uh, Re, the, the reassessment of their strategy, leaving the region, pivoting towards China. So still the, the, the American mind is not clear what they want. They stay, uh, they leave, and, and, and I'm always saying the American creating problem when they step in, creating problem when they step out. So uh, I don't think this issue is part of that competition. now. 
as the Obama's administration, when they formed that deal with Iran, they thought that now there will be a peace uh, 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 in the region and, 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 and the countries in the region, the Gulfers and the Iranian will take care of that region. And what, that was a wrong, uh, wrong assessment when they, and they will pivot and they will uh, focus on, on, uh, on China. If a Trump administration, have the, the same thinking, I think they, they will be, they are wrong. Because th this accord or this agreement will not lead to that stability. We still have many uh, crises in the region. We have Syria, we have Libya, we have Yemen, we have Lebanon, we have many. So not only the normalization will lead to uh, stabilization in the region. The only things that which is, it's not a kind of the, uh, the wealth in the Gulf and the technology in the Israeli. This, uh, my view, successful of that agreement, it can convince the others in the region that if we, the normalization or, or, or peace and stability will uh, create what we call it win-win situation instead departing of, from zero sum, uh, uh, situation which we are uh, in it now. And, and this is will convince everybody, even Iranian, to jump to that and be part of this uh, normalization. This is will be it. But if the, the, this is, does not guarantee stability, this only normalization, does not guarantee security and stability in the region. Okay, um, I have another question from, from um, uh, somebody called uh, Mohammed Al-Attar. Uh, it's written in English, so I don't know how to pronounce it correctly. Um, so this is directed at all speakers, but obviously particularly uh, at this one again. Uh, the idea of the UAE stopping the annexation and the settlements is nonsense. It took less than two hours for Netanyahu to burst the bubble. That presumably is, is a reference to uh, his uh, assurance that whatever had been said, uh, the annexation had only been uh, postponed and uh, settlement activity would indeed uh, continue. Uh, he, um, he says, I live in Ramallah and at this moment I am watching the construction still going on at the settlements nearby? Well, okay, because also the Palestinian, uh, I think that the Israeli decision to, to, to freeze annexation in, in, in UAE perspective will give Palestinian and Israeli chance to rethink the peace process and open channels for strategic dialogue and, and, and uh, a negotiation and a bite to reach a solution to their long-standing conflict. If, if, if no solution scenarios exist with continued Israeli uh, unilateral measures such as uh, the latest uh, annexation plan, that will make uh, Tel Aviv strategically pay a high price. Mm. This assessment also shared by uh, Israeli um, think tank uh, INSS. So, the, the, the successful implementation of this um, agreement 
uh, and the normalization of relation based on the process of building trust uh, founded upon rational calculation will encourage the Arab parties and this is this is UAE perspective push also the Palestinian to to come to that now he is saying nonsense okay why the Israeli will wait forever for the Palestinian the Palestinian is losing their chances they're losing their opportunities and as they've lost the previous ones well, Israel will not wait forever for that. Uh, by the way, when uh, the new version, uh, also Trump think of that Arab initiative, that the deal of the century was a new version of that. Also the Palestinian refused that. So, and they are not coming with a, 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 another solution based on the reality now. We cannot go back to uh, uh, 1967 or even 2000. Now, based on that reality, what can we achieve as Arab or as a Palestinian? Any other comments from the yeah. speakers? Yeah, please. I uh, would like uh, to add a short comment. Um, I do agree with the Palestinians who asked the question that um, facts on the ground are much more important. The bottom line. I mean, the whole question of annexation, suspending or not suspending, well, that's what was decided now, and that might be raised again in the future. But nothing changed in terms of the facts on the ground and the continuation of the constructions of settlements. And as of now, we are talking about more than 400,000 uh, Israelis, uh, beyond the green line, and the numbers are continuing every year. So this is a serious concern, and that's why I think that this serious concern should be taken into account by the Palestinian leadership. Take uh, Mahmoud Abbas, he was appearing in front uh, of the UN. You remember the famous uh, picture of him holding the various maps of what was promised to the Palestinians. 37, 47, and the Oslo agreements, and go on. And then the maps showing that little by little, they are being given less. So what is the outcome? What is the conclusion? I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to think, you know, as a Palestinian, what is the, the, the conclusions of all that, that we have time and again being screwed up, sorry for the word, you know, by the international community, or that maybe we have made mistakes along the way. So if we made mistakes, let's try to correct them or modify them and to do something better. And at least in my research, in my previous research on missed opportunities in the Arab Republic conflict, my conclusion, and that was, um, I was trying to rely on, let's say, on a balance, an objective scientific definition of what is a missed opportunity. And my conclusion that was that the Palestinian missed few opportunities in 47 with the Clinton parameters and with uh, Abu Mazen talks with Olmert, they made mistakes. And you know, Kerry's book, his memoirs published only a few months ago, 
he said that after the Clinton parameters were published, after a while, he met Arafat. And Arafat told him secretly that he made a mistake. I mean, that is the first time that I've read something like that regarding Arafat's view of the Clinton parameters. So that makes you think about, you know, let's try and learn from history. Let's try to learn from past mistakes and don't repeat them. Now we're coming to the end of our time, if I'm uh, right. Um, does anybody, do any of the speakers want to um, uh, say anything else or can I ask a final question? Maybe. Um, so, um, there's been a lot of speculation about whether Saudi Arabia will follow uh, the, uh, the example of uh, the UAE and Bahrain. Um, the, I agree with Ellie that uh, nothing is likely to happen uh, before the, uh, the US presidential election, which is only a, a few weeks away, of course. Um, but does anybody think that uh, if Mohammed bin Salman takes over from his father, King Salman, that uh, he will go ahead and follow uh, suit with, um, with Saudi Arabia. Obviously an important, uh, possibly the most important country uh, in the Gulf and arguably uh, in, in, in the Arab and Muslim world. Does anybody think that that will likely happen? I'll, I'll, I'll start the conversation, Ian. Um, I think it will very much depend on how by that point and when he takes over, um, Saudi Arabia still wants to realize its vision 2030 and to what extent it sees Israeli expertise, technology, and so forth, as integral to realizing that, that vision. That's from the Saudi perspective. I think from the Israeli perspective, um, yes, I'm sure they would, they would uh, um, want a relationship, an open relationship with, with, with Saudi Arabia for the obvious security reasons. But I think as well, there are caveats to that. And caveats being, of course, what about the nuclear program? Um, Israel's had this thing called the so-called Begin Doctrine, and there are concerns, of course, that it, that, that um, Saudi Arabia has ambitions to develop its own um, nuclear weapons program. So I think, to be blunt, it would very much depend on where we find ourselves in, say, three, five years' time, and the extent to which there are set, there are also the ongoing internal power struggles within the Saudi court itself. After Sam. Well, the generational change, yeah, it might. But, I, you know, because Saudi for a long time was, I would say, the Cassidy and also of, of uh, one of the main uh, regional uh, Arab countries beside Egypt and, and, and Jordan. Uh, in terms of, of uh, Palestinian issues and because also of the uh, peace initiative, uh, Saudi came since uh, King Abdullah, the late King Abdullah. Uh, I would say, yes, the, there is change in the leadership. Saudi might move, but also we have been mentioned in the beginning, what will be the price from the Israeli 
time. Because to say solution can be a price because each want a price for their normalization, right? Uh, so I think the Saudi also will, will think about what the price they are going to get, beside what, what uh, Clive uh, mentioned, it's also what they will get from that normalization. This is also a question they are asking. Ali, well, last if, word? Yeah, if you would have asked me this question, let's say even three months ago, I would definitely say no, but things are changing. And, um, but um, I think that uh, if I'll follow up uh, what Sam just said, uh, there are no free meals. I mean, someone has to pay. I mean, even with the Emirati, it was not a free ride and it was not peace for peace. And what can Israel offer to the Saudis? I don't think that here that any weapons are the important issue. So this is a big question that we have to consider. But let's say that, um, in my mind at least, the ideal solution would be, and maybe the Saudis would think so too, is that something will be done simultaneously. Meaning that something, something different than the Trump peace plan, because this is not a starter but something different will be offered to the Palestinians, and reasonable. I don't want to define here now, I mean, what does it mean, reasonable, but something which we can work with. And for that, is for Israeli acceptance, uh, the Saudis were will, would be willing to recognize Israel and normalize relations. So they, they there must be here a give and take, a certain give and take. Good. Thank you very much to all of you, to, to Sam, to Clive, and to Ellie. And I hope that uh, I've answered, I've managed to ask enough of your uh, many questions.